All right, everybody. Uh, for those who don't know, Central Baptist is going to be having their VBS this week. So you can see behind us, we've got a little bit of the VBS in that corner there, and uh, the tables are a little different today. I've heard the stage. I haven't. Have you seen the stage yet? Is it? What is? It, is it pretty wild? Cowboy Christmas. So I can't wait oh to see the sanctuary. Christmas trees and all. <laughs> I haven't witnessed it yet, but I am anticipating uh, the Cowboy Christmas in July. That's going to be fantastic. But that's what Central is going to be doing this week. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with us to, we're going to start in Revelation 11, and we've spent a number of weeks in 11, 12, and 13, and we're just going to give a quick flyover of those three chapters, and we aren't going to take the time to defend all of our positions thoroughly. We tried to do some of that in previous weeks, but we'll just give sort of a 30,000-foot view of what's going on in 11, 12, and 13, and then we really do plan to get to the mark of the beast today. I know I know you just, you can't wait. You just, what is the 666 thing all about? What's going on? So don't know if we'll answer all your questions. In fact, I'm pretty sure we won't answer all your questions about that, but we'll at least give it a shot as to what that might be uh, referring to. Papa Fred, how are you to, today, I'm sir? I'm here. Ready for the Cowboy I'm Christmas? I'm ready for the Cowboy Christmas. <laughs> Buckle up, buttercup. <laughs> on that note, Papa Fred, please pray for us, and then we will jump in. Uh, Father God, uh, I was just sharing with Mark, uh, you know, when you read Scripture, it's amazing what you find uh, in Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Um, Father, when I uh, read this verse and verses and pondered that this week, I, I realized that, uh, with the help of the commentary, of course, that this is the end. This is, he is spoken of as the one who is and who was, and not is to come because he has come, and he's reigning, and he's sitting on his throne, and that's where he is right now, awaiting that, that day when he will come again, and we will be with him forever and ever. Thank you, Lord, for this, uh, this wonderful study. Uh, I, I compare it uh, every day to Daniel, uh, that book in which my eyes were, were first opened to the marvelous way that you work through uh, the visions of Daniel and, and, uh, and very similarly in, in Revelation, uh, depicting uh, things that are and things to come. Uh, bless us now, and we need your spirit this afternoon, Father, to, uh, to ex rightly exposit your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> Papa Fred, can you read chapter 11, verses 1 and 2? Yes, sir. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So again, the argument that we're, we're trying to make is that chapters 11, 12, and 13 tell a very similar story from slightly different perspectives. And you really are dealing with the church age and the suffering of the church 
both its protection and its persecution during the 42 months or the, or the, the time of the church age. And this leads to an ultimate time of persecution right at the end, at the time of Christ's return, uh, led by, again, the Antichrist figure uh, who is to come. And God is ultimately going to vindicate His church, even though they've gone through a lot of difficulties. So, in chapter 11, the temple of God, you remember earlier in Revelation, temple of God is a metaphor for the people of God. It says that God will make you a pillar in the temple of God in Revelation 2 and 3. And so we take temple of God as it's normally used in the New Testament to be a reference to God's people, the church, and that they are both being measured and protected, but also the outer courts being trampled during the 42 months, representing both God's preserving of His faithful people, but also they're being trampled or persecuted by the nations during the time of the church age. And then look at the rest of chapter 11, starting in verse 3, it says, "'And I will grant authority to my two witnesses.'" And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. We saw in chapter 1, verse 20, that the lampstand, remember, John tells us it represents the church. Lampstands in 120 represent the church. And so here we believe these two lampstands represent God's people, the church again, who are during this time period going to be persecuted but also preaching the truth. You see verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Uh, And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some uh, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in their tomb. And all who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been uh, tormented by... Uh, had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Uh, This is representing, I think, the final persecution of the church. At the very end of the age, the church is essentially, like these two witnesses, put to death. It is is driven probably underground, Uh, and there's an immense worldwide persecution of the church. We believe this is the same event described as Armageddon in chapter 16, the worldwide assault on the church. I believe it's the same event described in Revelation 20 of all the kings of the earth bringing out their forces against the people of God. And I think we'll argue later that it's the same event in chapter 20 of Gog and Magog, the nations of the earth coming out again against the forces of the, against the church, and they were, they were defeated in that last moment uh, by God the Father. Well, this makes sense too, because the verses I just read a few minutes ago from the, uh, the end of uh, chapter uh, 11 indicate that this is the end. So we know that because of sim- the, the, the recapitulation and, and symbolism that the, the chapters are not necessarily in sequential order. But these two witnesses represent the church, the testimony of the church, and to the end. And there is a, um, an interpretation that this, the church will be largely um, not eliminated, never is, but will be diminished somewhat because of persecution by this time. So that's symbolic of these two witnesses being killed and then resurrected, which has a lot of symbolism to uh, Moses, Elijah, and, uh, but they're go, they go up in a cloud, very much like Jesus ascended after his crucifixion and resurrection. So, Yes, so the world, we believe, comes to an end in chapter 11, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. Verse 15, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And you can see the end of the world is there. And then chapter 12 sort of cycles back through. Just to cover 12 very briefly, the woman giving birth to the Messiah is, is God's people, the Messianic community. 
Jesus is born, and he's, it skips straight to his ascension back to heaven in verse 5. And then the three and a half years begins at the ascension of Christ, and it again represents the church age, where the woman who represents the Messianic people, we would call this the church in the New Covenant era, the church of God is driven into the wilderness. You think about Israel in the wilderness time, where they are uh, nourished by God and protected, but they are also being sought after by the dragon, and the dragon is opening his mouth and pouring out a river of water, trying to drown them with both false teaching and persecution throughout the church age. And again, that, that amps up toward the very end, as, as Fred was just describing. But, but this, again, describes God caring for His people during this time. Look at verse, uh, verse 13. I believe the, the devil has lost the war in heaven when Christ dies on the cross. He's lost any ground for accusation against us in verse 13. It says, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. If you remember, the woman represents the church together. The offspring rec- represent the individual members of the church. And again, if that sounds strange, Second John, I think it's verse 1, describes, it says, to the elect lady and her children. And most commentators think, I think this is correct, the elect lady is referring to a particular local church John is writing to, and her children refer to the individual members of that local church. So the elect woman or lady and her children is, again, two ways of describing God's church on earth. And again, again it is here. So this woman could be uh, symbolic of the mother of Jesus. She gave birth to the child who immediately ascends into heaven that we don't, we don't have but one verse of Jesus' uh, incarnation, and he ascends into heaven. Uh, but uh, the, the uh, serpent uh, is angry, dragon is angry, and so he pursues the offspring of the woman, which is the church. Yes. And, uh, uh, and the church will be persecuted until the end. Uh, now, I, I was going to ask you a question. I, 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 thought, about, I thought about it this morning. Uh, if, if, the, if Satan was, was, and his minions were cast out of heaven uh, with Christ's resurrection, the, her, his victory over death and, and the evil one, uh, to, to the earth, have, have we seen a difference in, in the 2,000 years with the way the evil one operates in the world, or I mean, to your interpretation? you know, in the last 2,000 years versus right. the time before. Yes. No, I, I do think it's somewhat, uh, it's, it's somewhat different. And in the, in the one regard that's, I think, important is Satan is the accuser, right? We've talked about this some. In heaven, for thousands of years, he'd been accusing God's people about their sins to God. If you want to see a clear example, Zechariah chapter 3. You can go look at that. You have, you have the high priest standing before God, and he's covered in filthy clothes, and Satan stands there and accuses him. His clothes represent the sin of the people. And he says, listen, he has no right to stand before you, this priest. He's covered in filth, representing the people's sin. And God says, okay, let's take off his clothes and put clean clothes on him. Do you see the gospel so clearly in Zechariah there? Well, when Jesus dies on the cross and rises to new life, Jesus has defeated our ultimate enemy, which is sin. And so now the accuser has no weapon left in his arsenal that actually works. He can act like he's got accusations, but who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God has justified 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus has died. More than that, has been raised to life and is seated at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Well, those verses in Romans 8 perfectly describe Revelation 12, right? You can't bring any charge, Satan, against God's elect. Why? Because God, Christ has died, like Romans 8 says, and been risen, and he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. No charge against us can stand. You can make empty accusations, but the cross won't let them stand. That's why it says, if, look, looking back real quick uh, at verse, um, let's see here, verse 11, let me look, look, Revelation 12, 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven, I think this is when Jesus died and rose, saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, that is Satan, has been thrown down, that's his defeat, who accuses them day and night before our God. Well, how did, how did the defeat happen? Verse 11, and they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you on earth and on sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So, I, you know, it's, I compare this to, to Hitler. When Hitler, when, when, when D-Day had happened, and the beaches of Normandy had been taken over by uh, the, the, the good guys in, the, in World War II, when that had happened, there was no way Hitler could win World War II. That was the moment where he was, in principle, defeated. But did the war end on D-Day? No, it didn't end until V-Day, right? And so there was a gap of months and months that went by, including the Battle of the Bulge. That's right. It was April. D-Day was June 6, 1944. Right. Uh, Hitler, I mean, uh, Germany's surrender was 45, April of 45. I was not going to be able to recall the dates. That's why we have Papa <laughs> Fred here. That I, was, is, I was there. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Papa Fred can remember. Uh, but, uh, so you, you, D-Day is the decisive defeat of Hitler. V-Day is when he officially was, was, it was totally done. But the cross is our D-Day. There's no looking back. There's no going back. Satan cannot win no matter what he does because the cross is D-Day. In principle, he's defeated. But that doesn't mean he's been completely disarmed entirely because he still has time in which he can be a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, like 1 Peter 5 says. So in the meantime, Satan knows he's been defeated. He knows all of God's elect will be saved. He cannot actually overcome that, but he wants to make life as miserable for his pe God's people as he possibly can in the limited time he's got left. He knows the countdown clock is going. He doesn't know how much time he has. He knows his time is short. And so like Hitler goes into a rage and he has the battle of the bulge happen after D-Day. Like Hitler is going to lose for sure. Everyone knows it, but he still fights the battle of the bulge. And it's this horrific battle. Why? Because he knows his time is short. He's filled with rage. It's not logic-driven. It's driven by hate and ego and whatever. And Hitler says, I'm going down fighting. I'm not giving up. I'm not surrendering. I'm going down fighting. And Satan is acting in, in a very similar way, which is no surprise given Hitler's character. Satan is acting in a very similar way. He knows he's going to lose, but yet he, he wants to go down fighting and making life as miserable as possible for God's wow. people. So, so for the sake of time, let's get to chapter 13. And uh, we will skip through the first part as we've covered it more thoroughly in the last two weeks. But again, you see this war on God's people. Look at verse 5, 13.5. And the beast, this is Satan's instrument on earth, government, abuse of power, totalitarianism. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So during the church age, the state is sometimes given totalitarian power Verse 6, it opened its mouth to, uh, to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. 
And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Something that was new to me studying Revelation in the last, say, year or so, I did not know the phrase, those who dwell on the earth or earth dwellers in Revelation, always refers to unbelievers. Always. So whenever something happens to those who dwell on the earth or earth dwellers, it's referring to those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life, those who, are, those who have rejected the gospel and are perishing in sin. And that's described again in verse 8. They will all follow the beast. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast. This is the false prophet, uh, the, the, the beast of false religion or false ideology. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Again, I hope we're getting this, this kind of rhythm here. When someone like Nero commits suicide and falls out, there's this vying for power in Rome amongst the Caesars in, in uh, not 1968, I'm in the wrong century, 68, that's a long way off. So in AD 68, when, when Nero realizes they're revolting against him, he commits suicide, he was in his early 30s, and then there's this vying for power, and there's a string of Caesars that go through really quickly at the end of the 60s, and it looks like the beast of Rome has been mortally wounded. It looks like they've lost power, and they're fumbling for control, and all these guys are vying for power, and suddenly you have the Vespasians and these different guys, Titus, these different Caesars rise, rise up to mission powerfully for the coming decades. The beast looks like it's been mortally wounded and it's going to fall apart. And then what happens? It rises back. One head is wounded, one king falls, and what happens? Another head rises, another king takes its place, and you have this always happening. There will always be another beast until the final beast is cast into the lake of fire. Papa comments? Well, the same thing. You can go, again, I'll go back to Daniel. Uh, even though uh, in the story of the statue in chapter 2, uh, there are they represent kingdoms, but there's Rome and the beyond in the last kingdom, and we're in the Roman beyond stage wherever we are, like today, in yes. 2022. Yes. So we're, we're generally, uh, in this Western world, descended somehow, mostly, of that Roman legacy. And just as an example, drop anywhere into an Old Testament book, and you have some opponent of Israel, right? A pagan opponent. And doesn't it just change throughout the Old Testament? But there's always a beast, right? It might be Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. It could be any of these, but there's always a beast. Even if it's dying and being replaced, it's always, there's always something there. So let's get closer to where we've been trying to get. Uh, hold your spot and turn to chapter 16. I want to show you the false trinity of the dragon and the two beasts. Look, look at 16 verse 13. This, again, refers to that same assault on the church, the worldwide attack, which is called Armageddon in chapter 16. Look at 16, 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, so that's Satan who parallels God the Father as an anti-father, and out of the, meast, the, the mouth of the beast, that would be an anti-God the Son, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Okay, hang with me here. The dragon clearly parallels the same, the dragon from the earlier chapter. The beast here represents the first beast from the sea with the seven heads and ten horns, the political beast. And then this third individual is the second beast from the other chapter. Now it's called the false prophet. Again, it's a religious beast, a false religious beast. That's why it's called a false prophet. And it teaches falsehoods. And look at verse 14. You'll see the same scenario in chapter 13 in a moment. 16 verse 14. 
for they, were, they are demonic spirits performing signs, so here's the demonic miracles, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for a battle on the great day of, of God the Almighty, verse 16, and they assemble them in the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. And then you skip to verse 20, and every island fled away, no mountains were found, great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven, and they cursed God for the plagues of hail because the plague was so severe. You have the final battle of God's opponents, the worldwide attack on the church called Armageddon here, which is symbolic, and God comes back and He brings final judgment there at the very end. But you and this is another end. This is the, yeah, this is, this is, again, we're, we're repeating here, we're recapitulating history, we're coming back to where we just were, and again, you, you, you have here uh, the world ending, earth and sky fleeing away, the battle of Armageddon, and who's there? The unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. That, that, that's, that's who's behind all of this. So back to chapter 13, I think you'll see the same themes we just saw in 16, again, right here. It's kind of amazing how similar it is. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. So again, this, this false prophet, the beast from the land, in verse 13, what does it do? It performs great signs. That sounds familiar. Demonic miracles. Even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, like an imitation of Elijah. And by the signs that it is allowed to work, in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. There's earth dwellers. They're deceived, unbelievers, telling them to make an image of the beast for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now, hold your spot here and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I know we've gone to this chapter before, but go to your left a little bit, 2 Thessalonians 2. And we're going to get Paul describing the same moment as well, essentially, here. And you'll hear again, you'll hear false demonic miracles, you'll hear an end-time opponent of God, here called the man of lawlessness, who I believe is the Antichrist figure. Listen to it all again. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. Oh, just pause there. That means lots of end-time teachers teach things that are not correct, that are going to be deceptive and misleading. Let no one deceive you in any way. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Now stop there. The rebellion must come before Christ comes back. The rebellion is the word where we get the word apostasy. It is almost certainly referring to a mass apostasy or falling away in the visible church worldwide around this time. In other words, it's what Jesus describes in Matthew 24. He says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. But he says, but the love of many will grow cold in those last days. And then he says, false prophets and false Christs will arrive deceiving many and leading many astray, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think Jesus is describing the same thing that's described here. I think it's the same thing in Revelation 13 and 16. In all these texts, you have false messiahs coming with demonic miracles, false signs and wonders, leading astray large numbers of professing Christians, and the, I believe the love of many growing cold is the same as the great rebellion. It's a, it's a large group of visible professing Christians I don't think these are real Christians losing their salvation. I don't think people lose their salvation. I think these are professing Christians, baptized Bible church goers who are going to have their love for Christ grow cold, and they're going to fall away and follow this false teacher in some, in, in some dramatic fashion uh, when he arrives. Verse 4, he will take, in the middle of verse 4, he will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I'll just stop here. 
highly controversial comment I'm about to make. A lot of Christians will disagree with this, and I understand. I don't think this is referring to a future rebuilt physical temple in Jerusalem in the last days that the Antichrist is going to physically sit in when Jesus returns to judge him. I think that, listen, every other time Paul uses temple of God or temple language in his letters, it means the church every single other time. Look at 1 Corinthians 3. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, All over the place. Whenever Paul uses temple language, it always references the church. I think when it says this end time figure takes his place in the temple of God, claiming to be God, I think it's referring to a person who has incredible influence over the worldwide church. Some sort of person who has incredible influence over the temple of God, God's church, God's church in this world, and that many people will be following him and being led astray by him. But the the second beast will will pave the way uh, by being the apostle of deception. Yes. Just like he's, he's replicating the Holy Spirit, who is the apostle of truth, the harbinger of truth. Uh, the, the false, the prophet, will be the, uh, will propagate lies. Period. Yes. Deception. And we see that, that we don't have to wait to the end times. We see deception now in the church of uh, prosperity gospel and on and on. We don't need to get into that trench yet, but... Uh, it exists today. Uh, even even Mark's illustration last week with the library illustration and that, no. those types. It's here, boys and girls. I mean, it's not. We don't have to wait till the end of time. The 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 uh, the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and doing well today. Yeah, that's a great point. In fact, it goes with this next part here. Look look at the middle of uh, verse. Uh, look at verse six. Second Thessalonians two six. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the, now, this is what Fred's saying, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is what? Already at work. This is, okay, it's not that we're so obsessed. I know we talked a lot in the last few months about like Antichrist and things like that, things I've hardly ever taught on in my life. I've talked about 20 different times in the last five months. So this is unusual for me to talk about this this much. But it's not because we're mainly obsessed with the Antichrist. It's because Paul is saying, listen, his spirit, the spirit of lawlessness, is at work right now in the church. So anytime a deceptive, false teaching spirit is at work in the church, that is the spirit of the lawless one that we must be resisting right here, right now. Even if we never live to see the man of lawlessness in the flesh, his spirit is here in the, in, in the now. And look at verse 8. And then after all this, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, that's the dragon, with all power and false signs and wonders. That's Revelation 13 again. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, why? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. How do we resist the spirit of the lawless one? The answer is we have great delight in the truth of God's word. That's how you resist. If you have great delight in the truth, you will not be susceptible to the pleasures of the errors. The sinful pleasures of the errors will not be attractive to us if we are delighting in what is actually true about Christ and the gospel. So if my joy is deeply in Jesus, I've got nothing to fear from all these opponents that are coming and are here now. Nothing to fear. But if my delight is not deeply in Christ, but in all the other things of this world, well then, wow, it's going to be really tempting to follow the spirit of this age uh, in those moments. Let's, I, uh, let's turn back to... Oh, go, go ahead, Papa. One quickie. Um, 
deception. Sometimes I like definitions of words. You ever ever do that? I mean, you go in, I have the Webster's Guide, and it gives you anonyms, synonyms, and the whole nine yards. But deception, the art of causing someone to accept as true or valid what is false or invalid. I mean, that's pretty foundational and straightforward. However, this is going to happen. It's happening today. I mean, there are churches out there, I mean, parading as churches, institutions parading as churches, that are not biblical at all. Yeah, I mean, to see, I'm not going to name people today, that'll come later in the fall, we'll name some people, but right now, just (laughs) to see people who I thought were rock solid doctrinally 10 or 15 years ago, and I, I look at them, and I can see their drift leftward on all moral issues in the last 15 years, to the point where I'm shocked. One of my former professors at, at seminary, who I loved this, at the time I loved this guy, I thought he was the next great thing to show up in the evangelical world. Today, I'm embarrassed by the stuff he says publicly. And that, that happened between 2008 and right now, seeing his shift. He, he has moved objectively. He even said in an interview, I'm not the same man I was in 2008. I said, no, you're not. But that's not a good thing. You, you, you have drifted far from where you were. And so even, even any of us are susceptible to these kinds of, these kinds of deceptive, deceptive things that can allure us off to the side. So let's turn back to Revelation 13. We've got to get to the mark right now before we, we hold it off another week. Uh, Revelation 13. Let, let me uh, catch us back up to speed here. See how similar, I'm going to reread some verses, see how similar this sounds to what we already read in 2 Thessalonians. Look at verse 13 of Revelation 13. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, sounds like 2 Thessalonians, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Think about that. Give breath to the image. I mean, that's like the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. Give breath to these bones so that they may live. So that's the ultimate in deception. Yes, just quoting a couple people here. Vern Poitras, good commentator on Revelation. He said, in democratic countries... Satan wants people to look to the state as if it were a messiah. When the, government, uh, when the government is set forth as the remedy for all ills, whether it be economic, social, medical, moral, or even spiritual, then the idolatry of the state uh, is, is prominent, and you search for the state to do what only God ultimately is, is going to do. Uh, he said, we should not sing praise to the state from whom all blessings flow. He said, soon we'll be, we'll be following the beast in that way of thinking. Um, he also said, listen to this, on the, on the false signs and wonders, I do think there will be demonic false signs. Like, remember in Exodus, Pharaoh's servants mimicked some of the plagues, probably by demonic uh, activity. I think that there will be uh, demonic miraculous deeds that will happen at some point at the end. But in the meantime, the state will use our own version of this, which is, Vern Poitras says, technology is now the worker of miraculous signs in our culture. With this message, Worship the power of the beast, the power of the technocratic state organization, the power of the expert, because science and technology can work wonders that no one else can. So C.S. Lewis warned us not about science, science is good, but about scientism, the worship of science as if it has all the answers or as if scientific consensus is the only arbiter of what is true in our society. Richard Phillips continues, today, secularists demand that science, think scientism, has all the answers about everything, the last word on everything, including morality and ultimate beliefs. The Roman emperors assumed to be guards uh, over what is true, 
And similarly today, the beast will have his servants mock the Christian lifestyle, amplify the sins of every prominent believer, and ridicule even the most godly and holy Christian virtues as being foolish, vain, and ignorant. He continues, in news broadcasts, in public schools, and in movies and television, a utopian message calls us to progress beyond the narrow thinking of the Bible with its God, its salvation, and its holy lifestyle. Of course, they never point out the reality of societal breakdown and the soul-crushing bondage of sin, since the false prophet's goal is the world's worship of a tyrannical beast and his slave master, Lord, the dragon. And I do think that's what's being uh, portrayed in this passage. Well, we've never had a generation. Uh, I'm not an anti-iPhone ranter. Uh, I happen to have one. Um, I would like to see that, though, Papa Fred. That would be great. But uh, I, I got off social media years ago, and I'm not anti-social media, but have you ever just texted something like Sunflower, and suddenly you get a, uh, an email on how to, how to buy a bushel of sunflowers? I mean, they know. Somebody knows what you're interests are and will pursue you. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. Okay, so let, let's look here at the mark itself. Verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free, slave and free, or free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So this is as infamous a passage as you could ever find. Tur turn with me real quick to the Old Testament. To uh, I'm going to give you some background passages here. Let's, let's start in uh, Exodus chapter 13. This is at the Passover event. I want to look at a few Old Testament passages here to give a little background about this idea of marking on your forehead and on your hand. And I, I want to say this as humbly as I can, but I still want to say it very clearly. I mean, I know people personally who think the mark is going to be a microchip in your right hand or wrist that they're going to implant into you that you have to use at the grocery store. And I know there's articles of people literally doing that. Or and the COVID shot. Yeah, or the COVID shot was the mark of the beast. People said, there's all kinds of things out there. L listen to me. Please don't buy into that stuff, okay? That, that is not what we're talking about here. I do not think this is necessarily in any way referring to a physical mark, although at different times and in different kingdoms, physical marks have been part of it. Like whether it's the swastika around your shoulder, there have been marks that are accompanying the beast. But this is not necessarily a physical mark. It's primarily a symbolic, spiritual, metaphorical mark that shows whose allegiance you have given your mind and your actions to. Your mind represents your thinking and your inner life, your heart and your mind. Whose, whose name is marked on your head represents your inner life's devotion. And what you have written on your, what's on your right arm, now I'm left-handed, so the metaphor breaks down with me. And John, you're with me on this. But it, what's written on your right arm is symbolic of your physical actions, right? It represents what your, what your body is devoted to, what you give the members of your body to. This is, this is symbolic language. Remember, Revelation is high, uh, highly symbolic. So look at, look at Exodus 13, verses 8 and 9. Uh, this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you uh, out of Egypt. Now, do you see? Is this literally saying you inscribe something about the Passover on your forehead or on your hand? No, that would be missing the point. The point is, the Passover is something we commemorate and we repeat every year. We talk about it with our children. It's like it's on our mouth. It's on our mind. It's on our forehead. It's a part of our actions. It's on our hand. Okay, skip with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 to your right. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6. This one to me is really strong on this point. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a very famous text for, for, for Israel. Look at Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall, have, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Listen to verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, I know some Jews do this literally, right? They have phylacteries where they put a little collection of scriptures on their hand. I think they may actually do their left hand and on their forehead. But that's not the point of this text. Do you see the point of the text? Love God with all your heart, soul, and might. How do you symbolize that? Metaphorically, it's like it's on your mind. It's right here in front of your head, and it's on your hand. In other words, when you walk, when you walk through the city with your kids, what's on your mind? What's on your lips? What do you talk about? The law of God. What do you talk about? What are you talking about with your neighbors, with your family, with your friends? I mean, I, I got on this verse the other day because I, I, we, we talked about it on Thursday night at Colossians. How do, we, how do we talk about the Lord with our family? How do we bring it up? Now, we don't, we don't put phylacteries on our right. forehead or our arm. Uh, you can go to Israel today and throw some shekels in the, in the jar and get some frontals to put on your... Yeah. Yeah, so, but we, we don't think this is referring to a literal thing. I think, that, so, for, like, here's an application. How do we apply this text about don't get the mark of the beast, be marked by Christ? It's going to sound like a very non-dramatic. This is why our view of the end times sells no books. Like, nobody wants to buy these books. It sounds so obvious and plain. It's not like some exciting thing in the Middle East is going on. Oh, wow, write a book and sell a million copies. No, our view of the end times is way more basic and less exciting than that. You, you ready? How do you avoid the mark of the beast for your children? You talk about Jesus, like it says here, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, that's how you fight against the mark of the beast. That's how you have the love of the Lord on your mind and on your heart, on your, on your head and on your hands, is you talk about Jesus like he's a real functioning part of your daily life with your children, and they just hear it come out of you all the time. And when you sin, you confess it, and you apologize, and you mention the gospel to your children over and over. When you talk about Jesus constantly, your children will grow up knowing they had Jesus on their mind and on their hands all the time, right? They had the mark of Christ on them, not the mark of the beast. They were not mainly about economic improvement in this world, although they care about the things of this world. They were mainly about Jesus. That's the mark of the lamb, not the mark of the beast. It's the, it's the anti-mark of the beast. Let me take you to one more place here in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 9, of all places. Ezekiel chapter 9. And Ezekiel has a lot of sim symbology. Yes. Symbolism. Look, look at Ezekiel 9, verse 4, and you got similar language here. Ezekiel 9, 4, and uh, God is speaking to a cherub for, for a time of judgment on Israel. Ezekiel 9, 4. And the Lord said to him, this angel, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So who gets this mark from God? Those who mourn over the sin of Israel. Verse 5, and to the others he said in his hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but touch no one whom, on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. This mark is a good mark. 
Anyone who is grieved by sin, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Anyone who is marked by that has the good mark, the mark of God that will avoid this judgment of God. Do you see? So th this marking on the head and the hands is all over the Bible, and it's non-literal. It is a symbolic language to who we are devoted to. If we mourn over sin, that is a sign that we do not have the mark of the beast, but that we have the mark of Yahweh, the mark of the Lord, that will, that the saving mark of the Lamb. I think you called it the anti-Shema. Yeah, the mark of the beast is the anti-Shema. The, the Deuteronomy 6 text is... It, it's called the Shema. It's called the Shema. The Lord our God, the, the, the Lord is one. Yes. It comes from the Hebrew word for hear, O Israel, which is the word Shema. Right. So the, the, the mark of the beast is the opposite of the Shema, the blessing of God given to those who love him with full devotion. Now let's go to Revelation, because we're not done yet. I'm going to take the full time today. Revelation, let's go start in chapter 7, and we'll work through the book uh, and show you a lot of these markings that I believe are symbolic. Let's start in chapter 7 of Revelation. Look at chapter 7. We'll start, remember the 144,000 we argue is symbolic for all of God's true people, true Israel. Look at Revelation 7, 3. So here we are told the angels are given power to harm the earth and the seas in verse 2. Verse 3, saying, do not harm the earth or the seas or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. You hear? That's the mark of God that protects you from God's judgment. Let's go to chapter 9 just over a page, chapter 9, when judgment comes, look at 9.4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green a plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. You hear that? So these are the people who have the wrong mark, the mark of the beast rather than the mark of the lamb, and they are not spared when judgment arrives. Look at chapter 14 of Revelation. Now, do you notice this comes directly after the mark of the beast, Right? This is immediately after the Mark of the Beast text. Look at 14.1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. This is symbolic language. It's not literally saying God the Father and God the Son tattooed on my forehead uh, for all of eternity. This is symbolic, again, of our devotion to the Lord rather than to the beast. And look at chapter 20, verse 4, the millennial reign, which we'll talk about more later. Chapter 20, verse 4, we'll talk about the details here in a future week, but look at 24, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. One more. Let's go to 22, verse 4, last chapter of the Bible. It's one of the great verses of the whole Bible. Look at 22, verse 4. You cannot beat this verse. Look at this. In eternity, it says in verse 4, of all believers, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Again, this is symbolic of the devotion to the Lamb, and we will get to see Jesus face to face. His, his name is on our foreheads, symbolically representing that we are given to Him. Now, let's turn back and there's a lot here. Turn back to chapter 13, and I want to talk about the number 666. <laughs> and we've got six minutes left. How fitting for that. <laughs> All right. So Revelation chapter 13, let's reread the end here. Verse 16. Also it caused all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. 
6. More ink has been spilled on that verse than anything in the book of Revelation, maybe the whole Bible. People think, uh, you know, Ronald Wilson Reagan, all three of his names have six letters in it. That's the number. That's 666, Ronald Reagan must be the Antichrist. He's the beast. Or, you know, people thought Henry Kissinger was because he was seeking world peace. So you can Google search it. Maybe you shouldn't. There's like 40 million, you know, cute. posts. Barney. Yeah, cute, cute purple, purple dinosaur. dinosaur. Yeah, so it could also be 666 because here's, here's what people think. There was something called gematria, which is where we get the word geometry in, 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 from Greek. And gematria is where in the Greek and Hebrew language, there was no number system. What they used was they used the letters to represent numbers, like A, alpha might represent one, and B, beta might represent two, and on it goes, although it doesn't work quite that cleanly. And what you do is you take someone's name like David, and if you add up the numbers of David, I think it's 14 or something like that. So you, you can do this. You, Geometria, you can calculate someone's number of their name. And people have tried to say, well, whoever the Antichrist is in the future, his name must calculate to 666 if you do this Geometria thing. And uh, so people have wild speculation. Everyone you could ever think of has been considered the beast or the Antichrist. And here's problem number one. I don't think this number is talking about gematria at all, probably. But if it is talking about this calculation of the name, which it might be, I could be wrong. If it is, I don't think it's referring to anyone in the future from when John is writing. I think it's looking, if, if it's looking to anyone, I think it's looking backwards to Nero Caesar. Although I still don't think it is referring to Nero Caesar, but if it's anybody, I think it's got to be backwards. John is writing in the 90s, looking back to Nero. If you now, this is complicated. If you take Nero Caesar and you do gematria in Greek, it doesn't work. It's like a thousand or something. You have to misspell it. You, you have to turn it into Hebrew first, and oh. you have to spell it a little oh, differently. Yeah. And if you do Cairo Caesar or whatever in Hebrew, transliteration, and then you calculate it, you do get 666. The problem is that is so confusing that... Who was figuring this out when they first received this? Like, who was going to figure that out? So, I mean, maybe it is referring to Nero, and if it is, then all it's saying is Nero is a type of the final Antichrist, just like Antiochus IV was. Just I like no, Hitler was. Just like Hitler was. I have no problem if Nero is the foreshadowing of the 666, a political tyrant who blames the Christians on everything and tries to get them killed. Maybe that is what this is referring to, but again, to ruin all Christian fiction books, we have, the mo we have the less exciting answer. Are you ready? This is what I think it really means. It's not that exciting, but I think it's what it means. I think all it's saying is this. I don't think it's gematria. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Maybe it's about Nero. Maybe. But I think it's m way more simple than that. The number of perfection is seven. The number of attempted perfection but falling short is six. And we know the unholy trinity is here, right? The beast, the false prophet, and the dragon. Well, that's 666. It's, it's an attempt to be God, but falling short every time. So you're trying to be 777, the, the Holy Trinity, but you can't ever quite make it there. In their attempt to mimic God, they never quite do it. They fall short every time. There's just 666. That's the number of, of man. It's the number of the sixth day of creation. When man was made, it comes short of the perfect number of seven. And I think all it's saying is, don't give your life to the beast because it will never actually give you what it promises to give you. It doesn't give completion and wholeness and fulfillment and perfection because it always falls terribly short of what it aspires to do and be. It blasphemes like it's God, but it's not 777. It's not the triune God of the Bible. It's 666. It's the false trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And they never actually will be able to do for us what they promise to do for us. Now Papa? The, the tattoo parlors know, though. Man. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. There's a lot of tattoos out there with 666. That's right. If it is Demetria, I think, I think Caesar's, uh, Nero is our best guess as a precursor of the beast, but I think it's 
maybe far simpler than that, is just falling short of God's perfect standard. Uh, six, 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 not seven, seven, seven. Papa Fred, can you close us in prayer? Father God, I, I, I reread this this week the uh, Shema and and Deuteronomy six. Deuteronomy is such a powerful book, but the chapter six is so powerful in, in itself. And and this is how we avoid uh, the the identification with the, the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon is to love the Lord with all our God and with all our heart and with all our mind and with all our soul uh, and, and, and to command these words that they be on your heart. Lord, let, us, let our affections be so wired, so geared to your word and to you that we would never even entertain some uh, false prophet or some uh, imitation, God, but that we'd be uh, smitten by your love and, and your affection for us and the fact that you died for us and that you care for us and that you've sealed us uh, like you sealed the 144,000. And Lord, we just, we're one day closer, as Jerry always says, and I can't wait. Uh, praying for the service, praying for the prayers and the singing and the sermon and and for the hearts of everyone that's seated in the, uh, in the building. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before you leave, just if you want to know where we're going, and, and I know it's been changed a little bit as we've gone, but uh, very likely what we'll do is hit a couple more key passages in Revelation to help us understand how to interpret it, and then we're going to spend a good chunk of time on the last three chapters or four chapters of the book. And so that'll be the millennium. We'll spend several weeks on the millennium. That's a big debate. And then final judgment and new heavens and new earth. And then when we're finished with that, this could be somewhere in September, early September, we will transition into our fall series, which will last the rest of the fall semester uh, towards Christmas, which will be against the culture, for the culture, and it'll be dealing with a lot of issues we're already dealing with now. So I hope that helps you guys some, but thank you, and we are done.